Stay with us immediately following today's Crosswalk for this week's Cross Culture Q&A. What you believe about God and what you do for God are no substitute for how you feel toward God. Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. It's never been about rules and regulations. It's always been about a relationship. It's always been about this thing between God and me that fulfills me and and completes me. Do you remember your first love? It may have been elementary or middle school, but most of us can recall that first person we had a crush on. We had feelings that we had never experienced before. We wanted to do things for them and be around them all the time. For most of us, though, in time, our feelings began to change and our first love became a distant memory. Do you know what it is to get to this place where you're just kind of going through the motions? You're just doing your religious thing and, oh, you're crossing your T's and you're dotting your I's and, 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 and you're reading the book and you're trying to stay true to it. But somewhere it's, you just, you've lost, it's just not there. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. This week in our series, The Revelation, we're diving into Jesus' messages to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And the very first church he addressed was in Ephesus. The Ephesian church was doing some good things. They were standing strong in the face of persecution. They were standing for truth and doctrinal integrity. They were doing the work of the ministry. But Jesus told them that they had left their first love. Just exactly what did Jesus mean by that? Somehow you got busy or it got mundane or you got into the rut or it's somewhere you've fallen from this. You've, you've lost this passion and this love, which is really what this whole thing is about. Well, today, Pastor Clay is walking us through verses 1 through 7 of Revelation chapter 2 to answer that very question and to learn what Jesus' warning means for the church today. We hope you enjoy today's message. What you think you know, you don't always know. What you think you're already certain of, you may not be as certain of it as you think you are. I kind of suspect that's how the church in Ephesus was. The church in Ephesus thought they knew where they stood with God. But God had a word for them that probably was not what they were expecting to hear. If you happen to bring a Bible with you uh, today, I would encourage you to open it to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. The text will be up on the screen as well. We're going to embark into this series, this this segment of of the book of Revelation, particularly or specifically chapters 2 and chapters 3. Over the next several weeks, we'll be working through chapters 2 and chapter 3 where Jesus sends these letters to seven different churches. If you've been with us in the past three weeks, as we've been starting in the book of Revelation, you know that we've already established that those were actual, literal churches in Asia Minor. And he's working working through that segment before we get into the futuristic events in chapter 4 and following. And and we'll get there, Lord willing, unless Jesus returns uh, before then, and and it probably really won't matter. But uh, chapter 2, verse 1 through 7 is... A letter, and Jesus. This is Jesus speaking. Remember, and he's using John the apostle. He's recording these words as as Jesus uh, appeared to him on the island of Patmos, where he was imprisoned. Let me read the text, and then we're going to jump into it this morning. Everybody with me today? You glad you're here? Thanks for coming out. You honor the Lord by doing so. Revelation chapter two, verse one: To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. 
The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Will you join me in prayer this morning? Father, uh, as, we, as we look at a, a letter that you sent to the church in Ephesus 2,000 years ago, an actual historical place with real events that were going on in the individual's lives that made up that church. We know that there was application for them that they needed to hear and and to heed. Uh, But also, because your word is is truth and a mixture of error, it is also applicable for the church Today, it's applicable for cross-culture church gathered in this room this morning. My prayer has been, is, and will continue to be throughout this walk through the book of Revelation that you would help us to understand your truth and that you would help us apply your truth as a result of what we learn. Lord, each person in this room, man, woman, boy, girl, in their own set of circumstances, in their own struggles, in their own trials, in their own triumphs, in their own whatever it is, meet them right where they are with your word, which is quick and alive and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide soul and spirit and even joint and marrow. Take your word and speak to our hearts and lives today. Lord, as we talk about these events penetrate deep into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to walk through it. Let's see what we find. The text begins with, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Right. Now, if you've been with us, you may may remember that we've already established the fact that the word angel simply means messenger. And that Jesus, it's, it's my conviction and, and many biblical scholars' conviction that he's referring to the pastors of the churches that he's writing to. The angels are the messengers. The messengers are the pastors of those seven churches. Um, they, they are given the charge of bringing the, God's message to the people. So in that respect, they are the messengers of Christ to the church. It does not mean that the pastors had some sort of special line to God. 
It does not mean that they were somehow had some status that placed them above uh, the, the non-pastors, if you will, of the church. Each one of us can and should uh, talk to our Heavenly Father through prayer. Each one of us can and should study the Word of God and, and find its wisdom and apply it uh, to our lives. It simply means that pastors have a special calling on their lives to spend their life studying the Word of God, preparing the Word of God, and then presenting to the people the Word of God in a way that directs, guides, challenges, and changes people's lives. So, Jesus says to the angel of the church that is in Ephesus. Jesus starts with Ephesus, um, probably because, I believe, it was the closest in proximity to the island of Patmos, where John was writing this from at the time. But I also believe that it's quite possible that Jesus starts with Ephesus because Ephesus was the flagship church in Asia Minor of that day. Ephesus was the church that that had been blessed in remarkable ways. It It was the prominent city of Asia Minor, and it was the prominent church of Asia Minor. The Apostle Paul himself had spent at least a couple of years there teaching the people, pastoring, shepherding the people there. Timothy had been the pastor in Ephesus for some period of time. Even John, the writer of the book of Revelation, had pastored in Ephesus. They had had the finest teaching that that anybody was going to have. They had had it in Ephesus. They had had the greatest examples that anybody was going to have. It was going to be in Ephesus. So if anybody was going to get it right, it would be the church at Ephesus. Hey, and you know what? They were getting it right in in some areas. They they were getting it right. Jesus says in in verse 2, he starts out there and he says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you do not tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and are not and you have found them to be false. And so so Jesus uh, notices, and we'll talk about that in just a minute, that, that there are some things that they are getting right. But before we get there, I want to stop for just a moment and and refer to this, this phrase that Jesus starts out with, I know, I know your deeds, and da-da-da-da, here it goes, I know. Now in English, when we say I know, we just, we just have one word for that, right? If I say um, I know Floyd Pierce, that's a true statement. But I don't know Floyd Pierce in the, in the same way that I know my wife, or or someone that's part of my family, or, or whatever. So we might use the same word, but there's different meanings. The Greeks didn't do that. Remember, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. The Greeks used different words to bring out the different nuances of that particular word. For instance, uh, many of you perhaps know that, that the Greeks had three, at least three different words for the word love. We just translate it, it would just be love. But the, the Greeks had different words. They, they would say uh, pornea, or they would say phileo, or they would say agape, and each of those would be very, very different. Phileo, the physical uh, contact, the sexual aspect of, of love. Phileo, the, the, the brotherly love, the, the kindness, the kind of love that I would have for my, my brother uh, Floyd. Uh, just bro- and, then, and then agape, which is even deeper still. It's the spiritual and, and an all-encompassing type of love, the type of love God has for us. So they'd have different words. Same is true with this word no. And I think it's important that you understand this. There was a common word that was used in the Greek language to say that you knew something, and that word was gnosko. 
And gnosko means just that. It is to know or it is to have knowledge of uh, some particular situation. It was the most common word used when somebody said, hey, I, I know that or I knew that. Or, I, I... But Jesus doesn't use that word here in, in his letter to the church. As a matter of fact, he, doesn't, he uses the same word throughout his letters, all seven of his letters. Jesus doesn't use gnosko. Jesus uses a less common word, oida which carries a much deeper, a much more uh, personal and intimate knowledge of a situation. So what Jesus is saying when he says, I oida, he's saying that he has complete, intimate, perfect knowledge of the situation that you are in. I know your deeds. So when Jesus says, I know, he's not just saying, hey, I heard this. or that. It, it is a deep, personal, complete knowledge. Now, that's one of those situations that, as we say, well, that, we've got good news and bad news. Good news is God knows. Bad news is God knows. You know what I'm saying? He knows everything. He knows, he, knows, he knows what you're suffering. He knows what you're feeling. He knows what you're going through. He knows your heartaches. He knows your motivations. He knows your faults. He knows everything and anything about our lives. God is, God is not, I hate it when, when somehow this idea gets, gets pushed on society that if God even exists, he's some, he's some distant God that, that is just somewhere out there and maybe got this whole thing started, but, but he's really not interested or involved in our lives and all that. That's totally untrue. God deeply cares about his church. It matters to him what goes on in his church. And he knows. He says, I know. Now, before we get into what it is that Jesus knows... I want to give you what I call a seven-part pattern for the seven letters to the seven churches and their seven pastors. In other words, in this letter to the church at Ephesus and then its letters to the next church and the next church and the next church, throughout chapters 2 and 3, seven letters that he writes, there's a pattern that emerges. And you see it over and over and over again in these letters. And I think, again that it's beneficial for us to know this pattern. I'm just going to give it to you right now, and then we'll walk through a fee, uh, the, the letter to the church in Ephesus, and you can see this. The seven-part pattern are, are, looks like this. This is how I see them. Credential, commendation, concern, change, consequence, challenge, comfort. Is that seven, four, five, six, seven? And comfort, yeah, sorry. Comfort's the last one. Credential, commendation, concern, change, consequence, challenge, and comfort. If you're filling in blanks, you can do that. I'm also going to walk through them again, so if you don't get them all, uh, don't worry about it. But what, what you're going to see is that this pattern emerges over and over and over again to these seven churches. I think that's important because when God says something one time, it's important, right? I mean, it ought to matter. But when he's saying something over and over and over again, he's, he's saying, hmm, listen. Listen to what I'm saying to you. This is important. All right, so let's jump into it and look at it. We begin with the credential. He opens with this credential, and we'll just walk through it in the text. Jesus starts with this. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, that language sounds very familiar to you. It's in chapter 1. As a matter of fact, you'll find when Jesus gives his credentials in each one of these letters, he pulls language straight out of chapter 1. That Remember we talked about that resume and that description of Jesus? He brings it back into chapters 2 and 3. It's his credential. It's his calling card. It's his 
It's his way of saying to you, I have the authority to speak into your life. Think of it this way. Uh, If a, a police detective shows up at your door, at least on TV, this is how I see him do it. If a police detective shows up at your door, the first thing he does, he or she does, is show you their badge, their credential. Meaning, by showing you that, what they're saying is, I have the authority to speak to you. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Remember, we already established the golden lampstands. Those are the churches. He's referring to the churches. The stars are the messengers, which are the pastors. What's he saying? He's saying, I have the credentials, ladies and gentlemen. I have the right to speak into your life, and I'm about to speak into your life right now. So he starts with a credential, and you'll find that over and over again as he walks through the seven churches. Next, after the credential comes the commendation. I told you that the, the, the church in Ephesus was getting some things right, and they were. And particularly, and I'll break them down and we'll look at it some more, but particularly they were getting it right in the area of ministry and they were getting it right in the area of theology. The church in Ephesus was getting those two things right. Watch uh, what he says here in verse 2. He says, I know, I oida, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. And then again in verse 3, he picks it back up again, and you have perseverance and have endured for my namesake and have not grown weary. It's his commendation. He says, hey, you're doing a great job. Hey, I know all about your ministry. I know how you're getting in there and you're toiling and you're working and you're, and you're, you're staying at it and, and, you're, and you're, you're not giving up and, and, and I know what you're having to go through and I know it's difficult at times, but I, I know that you're persevering. In the midst of this. And he commends them for it. They were getting that right. They were getting ministry right. They were doing ministry. They were helping each other out and investing and, and reaching out, no doubt, to others around them. And they were, they, were, they were doing good in that respect. They were getting the ministry right. They were also getting their theology right. Again, verse 2. And that you cannot endure evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles... And they are not. There were a lot of people going around in those days and claiming that they had direct knowledge from God. And that they claimed that, call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. They, they've tested their, what they said against the word of God and found it to be false. Picks back up again in verse 6 when he says, Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Nobody, I don't think anybody really knows for sure who the Nicolaitans were. Uh, Irenaeus, one of the church fathers, came along about 100 years later. Irenaeus claimed that, that they were a, a sect or a group that started from Nicholas, one of the original deacons in Acts chapter 6, that Nicholas went astray and, and started this whole sect. But nobody knows for sure where they came from. We're not even quite sure what they taught. Some people believe that they were the ones that started a movement that kind of separated the priesthood, if you will, the clergy, from from everybody else, and they, they, they made this divided wall that somehow the clergy and the, the priesthood were higher or closer to God than everybody else, and they started that. Some people believe that, that the Nicolaitans were the ones that were kind of the forerunners of, of what who are referred to as the antinomians, the people that were against law. They were against having to, uh, to, to walk uprightly and to be holy because they said, hey, Christ has paid for our sins. Uh, it's all paid for, so, so we need to go out. We, we really should go out and indulge ourselves in any and all immorality. Let's just, just, just have a party. Let's just have a great time because Christ has paid for it all. And that, was, that was the Nicolaitans. Whatever it was they were doing, it's quite clear that Jesus is not happy about it. Very strong phrase. I hate what they're doing. You hate it. I hate it. 
So, man, they're getting it right theologically. They're, they're, they're on top of their doctrine. They're on top of their, of their ministry. They're, they're, they're rolling up their sleeves, and they're, and they're going at it. He's commending them for it. But then comes the concern, the next part of the pattern. And it's in verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Hey, uh, Ephesians, and you're doing good. You're working hard. You're doing ministry. And I'm so grateful that you've got your doctrine right and, and, and you're, you, you've got it right. But I've got something against you. You've left your first love. When Jesus says you've left your first love in verse 4, he's referring to the fact that, and, and, I, and I bet most everybody in here can identify with this, that while the, while the Ephesians were, were doing ministry and, and, and they, were, man, they were doing that right, and while they were making sure that they were, they were going by the book and, and they were being scriptural, they had allowed themselves to grow distant from the motivation that should have been pushing them along all along, which was the love that they had for the Lord God to begin with. The, do you remember, what, if you're here today and, and you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, do you remember what it was like when you first gave your life to Jesus Christ? Do you remember that? Can you remember how excited you were and how passionate you were and how enthusiastic you were? And, oh, man, God has saved me, and, and, and this is just so exciting. And, and oh, man, it's just, I, can't, I can't wait to tell somebody else about this. And, and there, was this, there was just this exuberance and this excitement, and, and, and it was just in your life. And somewhere along the way, the Ephesians lost that. Their, their doctrine is still right. They're, 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 they're disciplined in their, in their ministry, but they've lost their delight in the Lord. So I just, I just, Lord, I just love you. And I'm just so grateful what you've done in my life. And I, I, I just, I, that's what they had moved away from. That's what they had, had lost. You've left your, your first love, is the way he said. By the way, it's very strong in, in, in the Greek language, the, the, grammatically very strong. Actually, the subject comes before the verb in the sentence. So that literally, it would read like this. Your first love, you have left. Here's, here's how I would say it to maybe make it even a little clearer. You've left or you've lost the love that you had at first. Hey, hey, Ephesians, you're doing so many things right, but you're missing the motivation. You're missing what it's supposed to be about in the first place. See, ladies, it's, it's never been about rules and regulations. It's always been about a relationship. It's always been about this thing between God and me that that fulfills me and, and completes me and makes me who I am, not just uh, all the do's. I mean, it's not like God just wants to keep us busy till he can get us to heaven. That's not what it's about. You, you've lost it. You've left your first love. That's, that's his concern that he brings to them. And so, as a result of that, comes the next step, which is the, the big-picture biblical principle. It's not part of the pattern, but it's the big-picture biblical principle. Big picture biblical principle. Forgot my BP squared there for a second. My BP squared is important as a result of what he says. He says, you're doing this right, and you're doing this right. Oh, but listen, here's a problem. You've left your first love. Here's the BP squared. It's simply this. What you believe about God 
and what you do for God are no substitute for how you feel toward God. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? Hey, hey, church in Ephesus, I am so glad that you're doing ministry and you're doing great at that. And I'm so glad that you're remaining doctrinally pure. You're staying close to the book. You're recognizing those that are, that are false teachers and, and you're not putting up with them. You're, you're rejecting false teachings. I'm so glad you're doing all of that. But listen to that, folks. That, that's important. And clearly, if Jesus is commending them for their, for their ministry and for their theology, clearly it's important. But it's no substitute for how I feel toward God. You've left your first love. That's the big picture biblical principle. What you think about God, what you believe about God, what you do for God are no substitute for how you feel toward God. So, so, what do I need to do? Let me give you 1 Corinthians 13. And this is from the message. It's a, it's a, it's a paraphrase. It's not a translation. But I, but I like the way it brings it across. If I speak with human eloquence an angelic ecstasy, but don't love, I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power and revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day, if I have faith that, that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've got nowhere Watch this. So no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. That's the heart of the issue for the church in Ephesus. Maybe that's the heart of the issue for some of us in here today. Can I, can I just ask you, rhetorically speaking, you don't have to, to say it out, out loud, but, but have, have you come to that place? Do you know what it is to get to this place where you're just kind of going through the motions? You're just doing your religious thing and, oh, you're, you're crossing your T's and you're dotting your I's and, 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 and you're reading the book and you're trying to stay true to it, but somewhere it's, you just, you've lost, it's just not there. The love, the, the passion. Church in Ephesus needed to change. So do you and I when we get to that place in our lives. Fortunately for us, Jesus tells us exactly how to do that. That's, that's the next part, which is the change. Verse 5, look what he says. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Right there, in that first little part of verse A, he gives you our action steps. There they are, right there, the action steps. What are they? Remember, repent, and return. That's what he says. He says, listen, listen, Ephesus. Listen, church. Oh, listen, I care about you. I want you to have that passion, that love that you had at the first. So here's what you need to do. Remember. Boy, remembering is a, is a good thing for us to do, don't you think? Do you remember how, how it was with your, with your spouse if you're married? Do you remember how it was on your wedding day? Do you remember those feelings of, of euphoria? Do you think of those thoughts fondly? Jesus, remember. Remember how you used to feel. Remember what, what used to motivate you. Remember what it is that I've done for you. Remember what it is that this thing is all about. Remember. It's got to start there. Remember from where you've fallen. Oh, you were, you, were, you were doing so well and somehow you got busy or it got mundane or you got into the rut or it's somewhere you've fallen from this. You've, you've lost this passion and this love, which is really what this whole thing is about. And so he says, repent. Metanoia is the word. It means not only to feel, oh, I feel so bad that I've gotten that way. No, it's not what the, the word means to turn around. And to begin to go in a new direction. To remember to repent. 
and then returned. You, see, you know the great thing about God? You know, it's the greatest thing about God is that, is that when we blow it and we blow it, don't we? He's always, he's always right there. He's saying, come on, come on, get up, get up. Let me dust you off. Let's go on down the road. Because I love you. And this always has been about a love relationship. It's never been about the do's and the don'ts. And yes, there's, there's expectations I have on your life. Yes, there's things that are good for you and things that are bad for you. But this is about this relationship between you and me. Come on, get up. Let's go. And he's always there. Remember, repent, and return to where you were. That's the change that he wants to bring into our lives. He doesn't stop there, though. The next part of the pattern, the next piece, the next part is the consequence. And you and I need to hear that as well. Because you and I are hard-headed at times. Or else, or else, I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Now listen to me. Listen to me. Jesus is not saying that some person is or, or would or will lose their salvation if they don't return to their first love. He's not talking about a loss of salvation that's just made too clear throughout the rest of the Scripture. But it is possible for individuals and church, a church overall to lose its effectiveness in the work of the kingdom of God. It is possible for Jesus to remove his hand of, a, of power upon that church that, that would allow that church to be effective for the kingdom of God. Jesus says, do this, repent, turn around, remember, return, or else I'm coming to you. Remember, he already established his credentials. I have the right to do this. I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Sadly, apparently, the church in Ephesus never repented. They never turned back to where they were. They continued to, to, to meet. No doubt they continued to, to uh, uh, keep their doctrine straight probably for quite some time. And, and they continued to do ministry. But eventually the church in Ephesus withered up and died. There's nothing but a pile of rubble where there once was a vibrant, active church in Asia Minor. It's the consequence. He says, listen, listen, there's a consequence you think this, you're just going to skate by on this? No. You know why? You know why? God says, I love you too much to leave you there. Don't we do the same thing for our kids? Sure. Go play in the street. Whatever. Sure. Take those pills. Here, here's some more. No, we don't, we don't do that. If, if, they, if they go play in the street, if they survive it, we wear their bottom out. Or we put them in time out. Or whatever floats your boat. But, but we love them, so, so we don't leave them there. And Jesus said, I'm not, I'm not content to leave you just going through the motions. I'm not content to just let you show up on Sunday and, and do your church thing. This is about you and me. This is about a relationship, and I'm not going to leave you in it. I love you too much to do that. It's a consequence. And then the challenge. He who has an ear, let him hear. You know what he's saying? He's saying, forget about the person sitting next to you. Forget about what the other churches are doing. Forget about all of that. Are you listening to me? Clay, are you listening to me? David, are you listening to me? Ernie, are you listening to me? If you have an ear, no matter what anybody else does, if you have an ear, you better hear what I'm saying to you. He's challenging us to listen to what he's saying to us. 
Which then brings us to the comfort. He doesn't, he doesn't leave us there. He comes back to this idea and he says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Remember his credential. I'm the one that can say this. I have the authority to do so. You're doing right here. You're messing up here. This is what you need to do. If you don't do that, this is what's going to happen. But for those who are truly mine, that heed and know and understand and respond as I'm calling to them. And he, he reminds us again, and he'll do this throughout these seven letters. He'll, he'll give another description of, what, of what, what's waiting for us. It's the seven-part pattern to the seven churches and the seven pastors that comes right on down to us today, to you and to me, right where we are, right in our lives, in the midst of everything that's going on with us. You've left your first love. Okay, remember, repent, return, and we'll start this thing again. Do you remember how you felt when you first trusted Jesus as your Savior? Do you remember the excitement? Do you remember the feelings of gratitude and the love you had for Him? Over the years, if we're not careful, it's easy to let our first love diminish in its intensity. Jesus commended the church in Ephesus for their doctrinal integrity, and He also commended them for their ministry. Clearly, what we believe about God is important. Serving God is important also. But when we begin to do those things out of habit or duty, void of love, then we've missed God's intention for our lives. Jesus' warning was serious, and you and I need to heed that same warning today. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, joy, and hope. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Now here's this week's Cross Culture Q&A. It's Q&A time uh, here at Cross Culture Church. Yes, it's... uh... Apparently growing in popularity, Q&A time. Each week we take a question that one of you have filled out uh, from our Q&A cards. You've dropped in the uh, offering boxes back there, and, uh, and I take one of those questions and deal with it each week. Last week, uh, Dr. Eric Clary dealt with a, a question related to the Haiti tragedy and, and where's God and that kind of thing, and hopefully that was helpful for you. Today, 
the question is uh, more of a, of a doctrinal question that, uh, that some people perhaps haven't thought so much about, but if, particularly if you come out of a, a particular religious background, this would be a question that uh, might be interesting to you. And the question this morning, Q&A, is this. What does the Bible say about purgatory? <laughs> what Our children are worshiping with us this morning. And one of them said Jesus or something, which is always the answer to everything. <laughs> what does the Bible say? Whatever, Jesus. Just Jesus. It's whatever it is, it's Jesus. And that's a, that's a good answer. What does the Bible say about uh, purgatory? Now, as I said a moment ago, if you come out of a particular religious background, that would be if, if you were raised or you came out of or perhaps are still involved in, in, a, in a Catholic upbringing or a Catholic background, purgatory might be something that you would be familiar with. Uh, people that come out of what's considered more of a Protestant background uh, purgatory is not so familiar uh, an area for them. So I thought it was a great question. Let's deal with this one. When we talk about purgatory, uh, the first thing to say is, is what, what do we mean by it? What, what is purgatory? Well, uh, let's look at it. Uh, purgatory, the word itself, uh, is a late Latin term, 13th century, you'll see. Uh, it comes from the Latin term purgatorius, which means purging. To purge or, or purging. That's what the word purgatory uh, means. Um, it's, like I said, it's 13th century uh, that the word and the, the idea, the concept of purgatory began to develop. Merriam-Webster defines it this way. An intermediate state after death for expiatory purification, specifically a place or state of punishment, wherein, according to Roman Catholic doctrine, the souls of those who die in God's grace may make satisfaction for past sins and so become fit for heaven. So purgatory becomes this intermediate place after death where they're not in heaven yet, but they uh, go to pay for their, some of their sins that perhaps were not a, a yet a paid for on earth, or those still living can, can pray and, uh, quite honestly, pay uh, their relatives out of purgatory is kind of the development of the idea. Uh, the uh, Catholic uh, Encyclopedia says this, according to Catholic Encyclopedia, purgatory is a place or condition of temporal, in other words, temporary punishment for those who, departing this life in God's grace, in other words, they were part of the church, this is the doctrine, they're a part of the church, they're in God's grace, and are not entirely free from venial faults or have not fully paid the satisfaction due to their transgressions. So to summarize, in Catholic theology, purgatory is a place that a Christian soul goes to after death to be cleansed of the sins that had not been fully satisfied during this life. That is the doctrine of purgatory. The problem that I have with the doctrine of purgatory is that it is totally and completely unbiblical. Uh, there is no scriptural support in, in what's considered the, the canon, the collection of books that we know as the Bible, for the idea of purgatory. As a matter of fact, you find exactly the opposite. The, the, the biggest fault to the doctrine of purgatory, as far as I'm concerned, is that it totally misses uh, what we refer to as the doctrine of of atonement or soteriology, the study of salvation, understanding how you and I come into God's grace. Let me give you just two passages of Scripture uh, to keep in mind when we're talking about this idea. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5 says, But he, uh, meaning uh, Jesus ultimately, but he was pierced for whose transgressions? 
for our transgressions. That's you and me. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are what? By his wounds, we are healed. Clearly, the implication of Isaiah's uh, passage of Scripture there is that that because of the atonement, the sacrificing death of Jesus Christ, our sins were already, have been paid for. Uh, To coincide with that in the New Testament, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The bottom line is, Christ either paid it all or he didn't. The idea that you and I can somehow, after this life, go somewhere and and work off or pay off our sins, or that someone who's still living can pray for us or or give financially in order to to move us on into heaven is simply, simply not supported by Scripture. And more than that, it actually conflicts with the clear teachings of the atonement as far as I'm concerned, the clear teachings of the atonement, the, the, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ's payment for our sins. And that's Q&A.